Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, we're going to head to the pub. Well, actually, today's episode is going to be a, a quick episode because well, we got time crunches going on. So, <laughs> Yeah, Drew's sick, and I'm about to head off for a trip for my 40th anniversary. Yeah, Hawaii will never be the same. Uh, That's right. But we are going to be doing feedback. We are going to talk one funny thing in the pub. And then we're going to jump over to Orlando, where I just talked to the founders of Rock Pit Brewing Company about what it means to be both a brewery and a homebrew shop. And then we're going to get some questions, something other, and get you on your way. But before we do any of that, please take a listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a hub for homebrewers since 1978. Visit homebrewersassociation.org for recipes, brewing tips, and community. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back. Drew's going to tell you about the latest episode of The Brew Files. Uh, the last episode of The Brew Files came out last week. It's episode 80, Chill or Don't. And it's our episode all about doing no chill brewing and my experiments that I've done with it and a couple of things I've learned. And uh, you're going to be hearing more about that in this episode because, boy, did that engender feedback. <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of people talking about that. Which is awesome. So we'll yeah. get to that in a second. Also, I want to let you know about something I just found out about recently. The Pacific Northwest Cider Symposium, which is taking place in Tacoma, Washington, March 9th and 10th. There are cider tastings. There are workshops. There's a chance to talk to some uh, commercial cider producers and about things. So I'm going to be heading up there and hopefully bringing back some interviews for all of you guys so that uh, we can all get more cider literate. There you go. And you can go and find out more about the Cider Symposium by going to www.nwcider.com slash symposium 2020. That's right. And we'll actually put that link uh, in the episode notes, too, so you can see it. So uh, hope to see some of you there. Yeah. Apples are good. Cider is better. <laughs> That's right, man. Uh, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon. 
and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's called Not One More Vet. It's an organization to support veterinarians who, it turns out, have a suicide rate way above average. And, uh, you know, they're the, the people who take care of our little furry buddies that we love so much. And we want to help them out because they do so much for us. So please go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and toss us a buck or two that we can uh, give to Not One More Vet to uh, help them help out. And now, it's time for your post-controversial episode, Feedback! Feedback. Yeah, man, I think that uh, we got just about the amount of feedback that we were expecting on this. Between uh, the two episodes where we talked about science versus experience and uh, no-chill brewing, which is kind of an extension of that there's a lot of people who have thoughts on it go figure brewers have opinions yeah really and so in our first piece of feedback about science versus experience remember denny and i talked about where do you lean on the science where do you lean on your experience uh we had a piece of feedback coming from brian swisher who said i think the dichotomy between science and personal experience is in part a reflection of the differences between the physical sciences aka physics and chemistry and the biological sciences the physical sciences are more defined by laws newton's laws laws of thermodynamics etc from which we expect no or very low variation in results. Well, at least until you go quantum. Um, <laughs> yeah. The biological sciences have no laws. Even one of its governing concepts, the theory of evolution by natural selection, has yet to obtain the status of law. This is because biology is more defined by variability than are the physical sciences. If we accept that the brewing process is largely governed by the laws of physics and chemistry, and that beer perception is more governed by biological processes and the inherent variation in our senses from one person to the next, then we get flummoxed when differences in physical and chemical properties that we detect using analytical tools cannot be detected by our senses. We biologists call this lack of biological significance in the face of statistical significance. That seems significant. <laughs> yeah. These ideas, to me, are at the heart of this interesting dichotomy. What surprises me most is how often we humans take side on either side of this dichotomy, the low DO supporters come to mind, without truly recognizing the existence of the other side. And Brian, that's a really good uh, summary. I hadn't really thought about that difference in terms of biology. Of course, now let's keep in mind that uh, the crops that we use to make our beer are also biological in nature. So there's a, there's a lot yeah. of wibble there too. I, I mean, I think it's an interesting hypothesis. I don't know if that's really where this dichotomy comes from, but uh, I'm willing to consider it because I don't have a better answer. Yep, it's a, it's a good one. And then also to your point about uh, people coming down on one of either sides, uh, there was an article that craft beer and brewing just put up on their website that I wrote for them about, you know, tropical stouts and foreign export stouts and talking about how, uh, things even in beer are very divided and the middle often gets forgotten. So yeah, it, it, these are interesting polarized, uh, times in everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of science, we got an email from Brian Height, who's been on the show before, and Brian is a Ph.D. microbiologist, and uh, he wrote in about uh, some of the no-chill stuff and the science versus uh, experience dichotomy with his take from a scientific point of view. And it was a, a really long email and a lot of great information and points in it, but just to kind of summarize what is relevant to uh, the discussion we had 
in terms of uh, doing no-chill in a keg. I had mentioned that people had expressed concerns about uh, the keg pulling a vacuum and sucking in bacteria, and uh, we talked about the risks of botulism doing no-chill. And Brian pretty much confirmed from his scientific point of view that there was no more risk in doing that than there was for cooling and making beer in any other form, and pretty much confirmed what we all know, which is that every beer has some sort of bacterial contamination to a greater or lesser extent, and that uh, doing no chill, either in a keg or anything else, does not subject you to any more risk than doing anything else. So our wild guesses were pretty much right, huh? Yeah, and I think the big key is that he said in his letter, the only real difference with Denny letting the beer chill overnight after having put it in a keg and allowing air to potentially infiltrate. So the only difference between laying the beer chill overnight before pitching the yeast is that there's a slightly longer period of time where the bacteria can grow. And in his mind, it's no worse than, you know, say a significant lag time from a yeast pitch. So very, very true. And this is also, I think, a place where, again, as I've said before, good vital yeast allows you to get away with a great many brewing sins. That's right, man. Good yeast and a good job of sanitizing. And again, uh, I mentioned that uh, most of the time when I'm doing no-chill in a keg, it's when I've uh, been brewing on one of my Pico brew units, and that keg has been used for boiling. So it's already pretty darn sanitized. And now, of course, to the fun topic, the one that I was looking forward to talking to, just if for nothing else, to see what people's uh, reactions to it. It was the chill or no-chill where... Denny and I talked about our no-chill experiences, as Denny just said he does his with the Pico. I've been doing mine in sort of very much the Australian fashion with the Cube. And so some of the samples of the feedback that we got, uh, Roger Mason uh, asked, perhaps I missed this in the podcast, how close to room temperature did the wort get after 10 or 12 hours? What did you do to get to pitch temperature? And I think I'm most likely to try this in the summer when my water temperature gets up to 67. I might try a, a quake since it can be pitched hot. Well, one, I envy your summer water temperatures of 67. Mine are like 76, <laughs> 78. Um, yeah, so I tend to finish my brewing when I'm doing this, say sometime between about 4 to 5 p.m., put it in the cube, and then I wait until the next morning. So usually I'm pitching sometime between the hours of 7 and 8. And by that point in time, it's at ambient temperatures or as it is right now, you know, those ambient temperatures are actually below standard pitching temperatures. So I'm actually even better off there in terms of how I always like to pitch, which is pitch low and then allow it to come up a little bit. Yeah, I think that uh, that's that's a great theory, man. And uh, like you said, this time of year, even in L.A., ambient temperatures are below what uh, most fermentation temperatures would be. Yep. And then John Lee asked, water conservation is becoming a big thing. Yes, it is. Uh, has anyone tried partial no-chill? I use my cooling water for cleaning. And I'd like to save a few pails for this. Would chilling down to 160 or 125 uh, matter? Now, I know you and I have split opinions on this. You're fine with it because, of course, you're saying, you know, hey, you're sanitizing the cube, if, at least if you're being paranoid like I am. Uh, so it right. shouldn't matter. Um, I'm still looking at it from the, the viewpoint of a food safety sort of person, person who had this drilled into cooking about danger zones and all that. Um, I'm not a fan of the idea of doing a partial chill. You either commit to doing the, the full no chill so you get the essentially the pasteurization of the cube. That's just the way that I feel comfortable doing it. You can always try to do it, you know, with your partial chill method. Um, but there you are. Yeah, I just I just can't see how it would be any different than doing uh, conventional uh, chilling and fermenting. You know, you uh, you put your chilled wort into a sanitized fermenter uh, all the time. So why couldn't you put 
partially chilled wort into a sanitized fermenter and have the same results. It's possible. I'm just paranoid. That's me. <laughs> You're paranoid and illogical all at the same time. Those usually go together. Yeah, I guess so. One again, like I said, I have I have culinary training, so I I've had that sort of thing beaten into my head about food safety. So yeah, I, I get a little I get a little worried leaving something in the danger zone if I'm not guaranteed that that the environment is safe. And so by putting it into the cube hot, you know that you're safe from pretty much everything except for botulism. Right. Uh, so that's just me being nervous. We also heard from our good friend from Australia, Peter Simons, who chimed in and said, most people I know who know chill will place the cube on its side for a while to make sure the cap gets good contact with the near boiling word. I, I mean, I think, I think that's a great idea. It certainly can't hurt. I would guess that just the general heat of that boiling work going into the cube would sanitize the cap when you put it on, but it certainly doesn't hurt to take further precautions. No, that's true. And that falls into my paranoid line. I'm thinking I'm kind of annoyed that I didn't think about it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, don't forget, we we will actually, uh, a little piece of news, we're going to have Peter on the podcast before too long because he's releasing a new book. So we're going to talk about it. All right. All right. And our final piece of feedback comes from Andrew Hammond. said, I just finished the listing. Andrew's down in Australia as well. I think he's in New South Wales. Uh, he said, I think you covered most of the things. I have found that brewing pale ales and IPAs, you can often completely omit the 60-minute edition and run with only 10 or flame out slash cube editions. Of course, this depends upon the alpha acid, the hops, and the style. But as you said, this technique works much better with non-hoppy beers. And yeah, I mean, I think the hop timing thing is going to be interesting. I want to take some of these beers and submit them to the brew lab so that we can get some actual IBU numbers. And that would be very much like what Andrew's talking about there with sort of doing your no bittering edition, all late edition type type of beers. Your only difference is now you have that long heat exposure at the end. There you go. That's just a couple of pieces of the feedback that we received about the No Chill episode. I'm sure that there's more opinions out there. And as always, you can always send us your opinions. PodcastExperimentalBrew.com. You can comment on our Facebook page. You can send up a smoke signal. We'll pay attention. Uh, and, you know, again, if you have experience with it or questions about the no-chill method, uh, we want to hear from you. Uh, just like with anything else, any questions you have, write in uh, podcast at experimentalbrew.com, and we will do our best to get you a decent answer. That we will, but now a beer. Now a beer. We're going to head over to the Experimental Brewing Pub and talk about the beer life and uh, something pretty funny that happened. So please stick around. We're going to be right back. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. 
Y-Yeast is redefining wintry mix this quarter, so we invite you to toast these new exclusive releases as we head into the new year. An original from our early days, 1087 Y-Yeast Bohemian Ale Blend is being released for the first time ever to homebrewers. Look forward to the qualities of this versatile blend in your next British or American-style ales. 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2 returns for its crisp, dry, and multi-profile and the ability to produce bright bitters and dark ale styles. And if you're seeking a cold-savvy yeast for winter brewing, 2105 Rocky Mountain Lager is ideal for North American and light lagers. These Y-East Originals are released now through the end of March and are available for a limited time at your local homebrew shop. Find out more at yeastlab.com. Welcome back to Experimental Brewing. If you have a chance to interact with any of our sponsors, please tell them that you heard about them here on the podcast. So we're having a couple beers today, and it looks like Drew is having uh, one of uh, Rock Pit's beers. Yep, so uh, Rock Pit uh, has a very nice selection. You're going to hear from Jeremy Pittman in short order. Uh, but the, I'm having their Saison du Houblon, you know, their hoppy Saison. And uh, all I can tell you is it's just kind of my my Jimmy Jam. It's a nice, clean saison with some nice hop character to it. You know, a little crisp bite to the back end. Uh, nothing funky about it. Just perfectly drinkable and absolutely wonderful, particularly if it's hot and humid outside, which, of course, it's not right now. But still, it's a damn good beer. <laughs> but it was in Florida when you were there. Yes, it was. Yeah, I figured that. I am uh, having the Sierra Nevada 40th anniversary ale that they put out in honor of their, wait for it, 40th anniversary. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know that you guys have heard me sing the praises of Sierra Nevada before. They are one of my favorite breweries. They are dedicated to quality and consistency, and all of their products uh, really, really show that. So for their 40th anniversary, what they've come up with is kind of a cross between their pale ale and their Christmas beer, the Celebration uh, IPA. Two of my favorite beers in the world, and this is just like a, a great blend of the two. It's uh, not as full-bodied and caramely as the uh, Celebration, but it's got a little bit more to it than the Pale Ale. Uh, all I can say is uh, I think it's a delicious beer. It's perfect for my tastes, and if you're a fan of uh, either or both of those other beers, then you should get yourself some of this and give it a try. Yeah, and when I had it, it had an interesting hop character to it. It wasn't exactly what I expected, but it was still pretty dang tasting. Interesting in what way? Well, I think the sample I had had some more herbal and uh, peppery notes to it than I expected. I expected it to be something a little more piney and fruity. Yeah, I, I guess it really wasn't you know jumping out at me as piney and fruity like that. Uh, but uh, you know what, man? I have a few more bottles around. I guess I'm going to have to sit down and evaluate another one. Oh, darn. <laughs> oh, darn indeed. 
Okay, and in the blast from the past department, uh, when we were in Seattle a couple months ago for book signings, we spent a very pleasant evening at uh, the Bainbridge Brewing uh, Public House on Bainbridge Island, talking to Russell Everett, the head brewer and founder there, uh, about... Uh, Oh, a lot of things, Beery. But one thing that he mentioned was that uh, he was coming up with some ideas for the strange brew fest that they have in Washington. You might remember a couple episodes ago, we talked about a gin and tonic beer that a friend of mine was going to try brewing for for that festival. By the way, there's there, there's some of that gin and tonic beer on the way, so hopefully we'll get a chance to try that. Well, and people will also remember uh, Russell was on the show and talking about his Cool Ranch Doritos beer that he won one time at Strange Brew Fest, and the whole idea right. the whole idea behind the festival is just hey make up something goofy and you know have some fun right yeah he made he made a Thai influenced beer for that festival and made stout noodles to go into it so Russell Russell is no stranger to weird ideas for beer so when we were there he was talking about maybe making a hard seltzer for it and Drew chimed in with one of his <laughs> outdoor ideas. Well, you know, it's it was one of those discussions that you have over beer, right? You know, which tends to go in places. And he had mentioned that his idea was he wanted to make hard seltzer for the Strange Brew Fest just to sort of tweak everybody's nose. And he was playing around with some ideas and he was like, oh, yeah, I want to like make a, a hazy IPA seltzer was one of the ideas. And I don't know why it occurred to me, but it did occur to me. I, I told him that, well, you know, look, if really what you want to do is if you're really going to go for it, you have to make a pastry stout hard seltzer. And the second that that hit the air, something shimmery and magic and evil happened in the world, like some great undread evil from had risen from the depths of the sea. To, to me, it just shows that Russell is as perverse as you are. Oh, yeah. And so the other day I noticed a Strange Brew Fest happened, I think, about two weeks ago now. Uh, or no, actually, sorry, it would have happened just, uh, just before we were recording this. And he had posted a comment on a Washington beer blog uh, website about why breweries should just bite the bullet and make a hard seltzer. And he uh, he said that he was making some hard seltzers for the uh, the idea. And I hadn't talked about what the idea was. If you guys go back and you listen to that episode, you'll hear me tease it. But there it was. And he said he was calling it the cynical cash grab hard seltzer line. And there's <laughs> I just I just love that name, man. Uh, uh, four exciting new flavors at Strange Brew including Totes Juicy Bra, which is his AZ IPA hard seltzer at 4% alcohol. Uh, and uh, he was like, yes, it will be uh, 4% colorless, crystal clear, hazy IPA. Don't question his methods. <laughs> crystal clear, hazy IPA. I love it. Yep. The Diet Beatus pastry stout hard seltzer. And he credited me for this, uh, as he terms it, this wonderful, awful idea. And they did it apparently as a chocolate coffee amaretto hard seltzer. I don't know whether if I should be proud or if I should hang my head in shame, but yeah, I, somehow it feels very much to me like the uh, same time as when you said, I'm going to, uh, Drew's starting to make a clam chowder saison. I gave you a recipe. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, Russell also uh, brewed a Cool Ranch Doritos hard seltzer because we just had to. It's kind of their thing, he says. And a purple people eater asian butterfly pea hard seltzer he says i'm mildly worried this one might actually be good <laughs> well i mean the purple pea tea is kind of yeah you know, interesting that butterfly pea tea 
It doesn't really have much of a flavor, but man, the color got uh, a punch. So I could see if you married it with some fruit flavors behind it, it could actually make for an interesting beverage of that line. And so Russell said that he did this on his main system, uh, basically, you know, brewed this up and then passed it through his lenticular filter. And he had more of it than he could possibly use at the Strange Brew Festival. So if you show up at the pub, they'll have some of this on tap. So if anybody... That means we also ought to hit him up for some samples, huh? I know. I'm kind of scared to see how the Diet Beatus came up, just because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. You know, I, I really think you owe it to Russell to at least try that uh, pastry stout hard seltzer. Oh, I totally want to. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, I want to, but at the same time, I know I'm going to be scared about it. But got to man up. Got to try my yeah. stupid idea. You know, it, right. as, as Hemingway famously, uh, well, supposedly famously said. Who knows these days with quotes on the internet? Uh, you know, always do sober what you said you'd do drunk. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go, man. So uh, I guess uh, we're going to get out of here now, and we're going to head over to the lounge to hear uh, Drew talk to Jeremy Pittman of Rock Pit Brewing and Orlando Homebrew Supply in, of all places, Orlando, Florida. Really, really a fascinating interview. I totally enjoyed listening to it, and I hope you guys will too. So stick around. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishing books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers, as well as titles that promote understanding and appreciation of American craft beer. Visit BrewersPublications.com to learn more. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to listen to an interview that Drew did with Jeremy Pittman of Rock Pit Brewing and Orlando Homebrew Supply. And uh, it sounds like really an interesting setup, man. Uh, we have a place here in town that started as a homebrew shop and then added on a brewery, and the brewery has kind of overtaken the homebrew shop now. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like Jeremy is like really pushing both, huh? Yeah, and it's kind of cool. I mean, we've, I mean, you guys will remember one of the first episodes of the show we had. Uh, Southern home making and home beer and wine making on, and they also have their little nano on the side. 
And every time I go in there, I think I referenced this in the interview, if I remember correctly. Uh, every time I go in there, you know, the brewery's taking up more and more of the space. If you go to Rock Pit, I mean, they started off as a homebrew shop in a different location and then got the idea that they also wanted to do the brewery. And so when they moved to open up the brewery, they also brought the homebrew shop along with them. And so now there's this nice little separate segment. There's still all the homebrew supplies. They got the guys homebrewing in the back. And it's just really interesting to see. They also had a really nice selection of beer. One thing I liked in all the places that we went to in Florida that I don't see here in California as much is you going to a lot of the breweries, they would not only have the beer on tap, but they would also have wine available and they would also have uh, cider available. So if you're like me and you're dragging your mom along who doesn't like beer, she can at least have a glass of cider or a glass of wine too. Um, but it is a really nice space. They are really lovely people. They got great barbecue that you can get delivered there and the beers are pretty damn good too. So all in all, really great to see just from a point of view of these people who are trying to drive, you know, both not only beer, but also beer education and finding that real interesting synergy between the two. Great, man. Let's hear Drew talking to Jeremy Pittman of Rock Pit Brewing. We are still here at Rock Pit Brewing. There's a brew session still happening around the corner. And now I think uh, we're moving into the sparge. Nice. Uh, so we're getting there. You know, it's becoming beer. But I'm talking with the man behind the place that we're at. Sir, introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm owner and um, co-head brewer here at uh, Rock Pit Brewing Company. Um, got a great brewery here in Orlando, Florida. We're located at 10 West Ileana Street, just in the Soto District. Um, so if you're ever in Orlando or want to come check out some uh, cool breweries, come check us out. Yeah, so j- just south of downtown. and Yes, sir. Yep. And, yeah. So if you're over at the, the parks, it's not that far. No, literally right off I-4. Uh, we actually get a lot of families that come in here uh, from tourism and stuff like that. They go to the parks, and they look up the nearest brewery. Rock Pit shows up. Sometimes Dead Lizard will show up. Mm-hmm. And um, they'll hit Dead Lizard, and they'll come here. And just when they find out we have a homebrew shop inside, they're just all for it. Because there's big homebrewers down in South America and other countries oh, and yeah. stuff. So they come in here and just buy so many supplies. So it's pretty cool. Well, so now let's talk about it. Because, yeah. I mean, the, the brewery really started with the shop, right? It did, yeah. Yeah. As we all kind of all did, we started homebrewing. You know, back in the day, all of us loved the whole aspect of homebrewing. And um, always wanted to open a homebrew shop and uh, decided to get that going and stuff. And uh, went really good. Had it for about three, four years. And uh, always had the aspirations to want to open a brewery with the brew shop. Mm-hmm. And um, after kind of getting a couple partners in the brewery and uh, found the perfect location we needed, we decided to go for it, and here we are now. Yeah, right next to the barbecue restaurant and across the street from a giant ABC, as I said. Yep, in the, yep. Previous <laughs> we pretty much got it all. <laughs> yeah, you're pretty well set, and uh, food comes in. But so how, how did the homebrew shop itself start? I mean, at yeah. what point in time did you decide... I don't want to make any money, so I want to own a homebrew shop. <laughs> exactly. Well, first I had to talk my wife into that, so that was a pretty hard discussion to do. But um, but no, she was actually real supportive of it, really was uh, wanting me to do it. But uh, when I got into homebrewing like 15 years ago, um, my main homebrew shop was Southern Homebrewing and Winemaking over in Tampa. Yeah. And um, really got to, the, like I met Chris Johnson over there from Green Bench, stuff like that. So really got into homebrewing. And I just love the aspect of just how people come together and come in and um, the, the hobby and the culture of it, you know, the friendship and stuff you gather from it. I'm like, I would love to have something like that to be a part of and bring people in and stuff. And so um, after 10, 12 years of homebrewing, um, decided to kind of start writing a business plan for doing a homebrew shop. It was just kind of like a pipe dream mm-hmm. in the beginning. It was just something to kind of occupy my time at night to have something to do. And um, we, me and my wife decided to move back to Orlando so she can finish her master's degree of what she's doing. And I said, you know what? I think it's a good opportunity for me to um, try to get the um, Orlando area brew shop, mm-hmm. and uh, went ahead and got it going. 
I was going to say, because the, old, uh, the oldest homebrew shop in the area is Hearts, right? Yeah, Hearts Homebrew. Um, they're kind of located up on Edgewater and Americana Boulevard. Yep. So, um, they're on got, the other side of town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I really picked the central location because, um, you know, I'm, I'm very – I got a conscience on me. And um, I know everybody works hard to open a business and stuff. And um, even though it's a free market out there, um, I, I, I wanted to get a central location where I wasn't impeding on Hearts, not impeding on Sanford or um, the homebrew shop down in St. Cloud and stuff. So I figured central location, you know, we could all at least keep keep sharing the, you know, the people coming in and stuff. So that's why I kind of chose downtown Orlando area. Yeah. And then, so you said you did the shop for three years as a separate thing. Yep. And then you decided to compound the idea of not making money with now having a brewery. <laughs> right. And still not making money. No, I'm just kidding. No, yeah. it's um, When I first wanted to do the shop, I really wanted to start out doing the brewery and shop together. That was like the very first dream I wanted to do. Um, but obviously capital for getting a brewery going just kind of didn't really have it. Um, so I figured I'd start with the shop, get that going, um, do some beer fest, take some of our homebrews out there and just start trying to make a name for ourselves. And uh, we started getting a really big following for a lot of the beers we make here at Rock Pit and stuff. And um, I hired Danny um, probably about six to eight months into when I opened the shop. Um, and he's my co-head brewer now here at Rock Pit. And uh, me and him just started brewing together, making a lot of our recipes together, taking them out to Beer Fest. And we started getting a really pretty big following. And um, after about a year of doing that, two years of doing that, we decided to kind of go ahead and go for the brewery. And um, here we are. Here we are. And you got yeah. And, and we were talking earlier, you have a, a, a Colorado brew system? We do, yeah. Yep. Basically, it's a giant brew in a bag system. Um, it, works, it works really well for what we need here. Um, we just didn't have the upfront capital to try to get the traditional system that we really wanted to get. And this was just a good way to get our foot in the door. Um, for about two years, I bought their small Colorado brewing system just to kind of test on it, see how mm-hmm. it does and stuff like that. Did really good. Really kind of did what we want to do. We were really happy with the product we were getting with it. Um, so we decided to go ahead and purchase the five-barrel system from them. Mm-hmm. And um, it does a great job. Not going to lie, it is a lot of extra labor that you got to <laughs> do with it, <laughs> as we all know for Bruna Bag. Um, but it does a really good job for what we want. And uh, But we got uh, things in the future that we would want to have a nice traditional system here upcoming soon. Yeah. So. Well, and I mean, so yeah, and you started, you said five barrels here. Yeah. Or that's where, yeah. where you're brewing right now. So yeah. right, other homebrew shops slash breweries I've been in, they almost always seem... Well, with the exception of Bells. Uh, they almost right. always seem to be like, oh, we're a nano with a homebrew shop. And Five Barrels is a little bit more of a reasonable, right. you know, non-nano-esque size. Sure. Almost so, like the microbrewery type stuff. Yeah. 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 yeah you're, you're a little bit closer to the traditional thing. So what do you see as the, the sort of interplay between the two sides here? The interplay I see is um, it's, it's basically trying to remind everybody the roots that we all started from, right? Like having the homebrew shop in here um, plays really well on keeping me, Danny, and other guys in here that brew just our, our artistic mind going, you know? Mm-hmm. And also um, cross-promotion, obviously, between the, the shop and the, and the brewery side. Um, and you've got the club. The, yeah, the, exactly, here. with the club and stuff. And um, so just having, like, you know, people see what we do here, that we teach classes, beer-making classes, wine-making classes and stuff. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of people that come into the brewery, um, had no idea we even had a shop here and stuff, never home-brewed. And they're like, oh, man, that sounds really interesting. Let's do it. And then um, I tell them we have a class. They'll come take a class, and they become homebrewers, you know. So it's it's beneficial. And, of course, when you come in the shop, you can get your ingredients and go over to the bar and enjoy beer and have some (laughs) lunch, hang out, and... Wait for us to get your order ready and stuff, and so I think it's a win-win on both sides. And and you know you can you can use the 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 board that you're seeing here at the at the bar to inspire what you're doing in the homebrew shop. Yeah, and also we write um, we write some clone recipes for some of the beers we do. Um, some of our flagship beers we keep on tap. Um, we have a few clone recipes we give out and stuff. So 
Uh, we actually have a few homebrewers in here that love some of the beers we make, mm-hmm. and they have already made some clone recipes, and they've turned out great in some of the beers. And uh, I think my next step I want to do is actually start making some kits to go mm-hmm. and stuff for just some of the beers that we have rotating on here. So now, how many beers do you have on tap right now? Uh, we are t- we are maxed out right now. We have 20 taps, and we've got about um, we have 18 taps, two nitro taps. Um, so we've got about 19 beers on tap right now rotating. And then I think you also have what uh, uh, cider and wine. Yeah, we got cider and wine. Um, right now we're uh, serving local peddlers hard cider that's here local in Orlando, and um, we have a variety of wine that we also offer as well. Uh, yeah, no, it made it very easy to convince my mom to come. I know. Right? <laughs> here, mom, you can have a glass of wine. While, uh, yep, while sit back, relax. Yep. So, what do you really consider to be your brewing philosophy? And remember, you can't use the word balance. You got it. <laughs> balance. <laughs> My brewing philosophy, honestly, is, um, is is making a beer that our customers want and enjoy. Um, we're not here to make stuff that we want, you know, that we like. We're here to make um, recipes and different styles of beer that we we have tons of people that come in here and say, oh, I'd love to have a beer like this, or I'd love to have a beer like that. And what are we going to do? We're going to brew it for them, mm-hmm. you know. So I think the main thing for me is, like, people coming in, um, really enjoying what we do and stuff, and, um, you know, just that we offer them a great variety of things, and, you know, whatever they want, we'll give it to them. Well, I was looking at the list earlier, and, and it feels very much like, you know, still in that homebrew spirit of sure. a yeah. little of this, a All little different of varieties, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's not, you know, it's not what I've seen in a lot of breweries nowadays where you walk in and it's like, hey, we got 10 taps, eight of them are IPA. Right, right. <laughs> Which is fine, because I'm an IPA guy. I'm a very big West Coast IPA guy. I love West Coast. I love the New England styles and stuff. Um, those are my go-to for me, um, and they are some of the. There's some of the most popular, best-selling beers out there, and that's why we do make sure we keep a few of those on tap. Um, but we found out that a lot of people love having the variety. They love having like a couple sours, a couple Belgian beers, a couple lagers on tap, stuff like that, and it's worked out pretty well for us so far. Right, well, now tell us about the beer that we're having right now here. Yeah, this is uh, the Bait Noir. Um, this is a collaboration um, with Ivanhoe Brewing and Deviant Wolf Brewing. Um, Ivanhoe is located over in Ivanhoe Park here in Orlando. Go figure. And um, yeah, and Deviant Wolf is uh, located up in Sanford, um, Sanford up there. And uh, basically, we decided to come together and do a dark farmhouse saison. Um, it's got some dark roasted malt character. Um, it's got that, um, we use the Javaro um, Lithuanian farmhouse yeast okay. that they do from Omega. Um, so it's got that nice, slight little farmhouse saison character on the back end. Uh, and it's, then, got, it's got really interesting phenol. It does, yeah. A little bit of phenol character in there. And uh, we aged it on um, red oak wine chips as well. Okay. So we aged it for about a month um, with a red blend wine um, that soaked the oak chips for about a month. Added them into the actual beer and let them age on there for a good while, and um, it pretty came out pretty pretty well balanced, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and what I like is a lot of times when people are doing uh, darker saisons, you'll get that you'll you'll get a a real rough interplay between the roast and then all the phenol right. characters. Almost that come like they're kind of like going get you know going against each other. Yeah, they, so. they clash, and it's right. just mm. um, this one maybe because it's the Lithuanian farmhouse yeast, you know. Again, yeah, there's an interesting phenol, but it's not over the top. Right. And then the uh, the roast is still kind of sitting there. It, a little it, subtle. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, there is a roast character to it. What would you use for your roast malts? Uh, the roast malt, I believe we used was a black malt was one of them, and a little bit of carafa too in there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. See, I always like using, if I'm going to do anything with a phenol application, I like to use those uh, debittered chocolate malts like yep. the carafa. Right. Because I, I think they deliver a better experience. I agree, definitely. I think they got a lot of robust flavor they give out and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. With, without, without that... Acrid Without quality. the real harsh acridness yeah. of it, yeah. Yep. Um, and so the, there's this one, and then earlier I'd had with the, the guys over here, you had the Saison Hublon. Oh, yeah. Yep. And that, was, that was really, really nice. Yep, and that's a, um, actually a dry hop Saison, too, we did. And, um, yeah, it's got some pretty good pretty good feedback right now. Yeah. Yep. 
what, what do you consider to be your, your flagship? Flagship right now, um, gosh, oh my goodness, we have so many rotating stuff. Um, I'd have to say our new rendition of our Cackler IPA that we did, it's our house IPA we have. Um, that's that's pretty popular right now that we have going on. Um, we just kicked our Nebulous, which was our New England IPA that we did with all Citra and Sabro. Um, we did about six barrels of it, and six barrels was gone in three weeks. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a very popular IPA that we did. Oh, so by, um, by the end of those three weeks, that, that IPA was, you know, that was old. That was out of age. I know, right? It was actually, <laughs> it was still so vibrant. It was crazy. I couldn't believe it. Well, so, Sabro <laughs> seems to be the the big hop that all the IPA guys are chasing right now. They are. It's got a very unique character. Um, we made um, a one New England IPA just with all Sabro before, and uh, we called it Wasabro. Um, kind of just a little funny play on it, you know. And um, it gives off, like when we, we did Strictly Whirlpool, and we were getting nothing in the aroma but extremely uh, cream of coconut. Mm-hmm. It, it was really amazing how that hop really um, played out. And you still get some good tropical properties from it as well. But when you pair it with Citra, it just paired so nicely. I mean, it was strong tropical notes, tangerine, orange, a little bit of coconut in the background. Mm-hmm. And if you use Sabra by itself, too, you always get, like, little hints of a cedar mints a little bit, too, in the background. Yep. So it's a very unique hop. You know? Yeah, and I, I still, at least personally for me, when I'm formulating a recipe, I still have trouble trying to figure out how to really incorporate those woody notes that like yeah. that co- that coconut husky thing right right or cedar and uh, a number of the experimental hops that have come up recently all yeah. have wood notes to them i'm always like i don't know how i make that work in an ipa yeah there was like. another one we did it was hbc 439 i believe the hbc 439 i think was the number um it doesn't have a name yet but um it's supposed to give off it's it's i think it's like a sister to sabro um, it gives off a lot of wood character, a lot of oak character, supposedly. And we did it with our Sour Binds IPA that we have on tap right now, and that was strictly all Whirlpool. We kind of treated that like a New England, um, sour sour New England, and um, used all of it in Whirlpool, and it's got a really interesting character to it, too. Cool. Yep. Yeah, it's it's fun to see where all of these things are going and, and how they challenge the brewer in, yep. in order to make the flavors. Right. So, and, and, of course, I mean, again, since you guys are on a five-barrel system, I mean, I mean, you still are very much in that in that space where, yeah, you can just play. Oh, uh, sure, yeah. And with having, like, the one-barrel system, because we got, like, a smaller pilot system, that's, like, our fun toy right there. We just we, we do a lot of one-off beers, a lot of good experimental stuff we get. Um, like, any type of experimental hops we get in, we might just do a small batch to see what kind of flavors it gives off. Uh, we're starting to do a lot of more smash-style beers, mm-hmm. um, especially for the homebrew side. We're going to yep. start doing that more, just so people can really get a good idea of, like, what this hop tastes like with this malt and have good comparison notes they can do when they come in. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, sm- uh, smashes are always a good learning lesson. Oh, yeah, big time. And uh-huh. a lot of beers that I've made smash beer, especially IPAs, just one malt and one hop, they've come out fantastic. I, I love a good smash beer. Uh, and if you think about it, they're, I mean... I mean, the world's biggest beer style is a smash beer. Oh, yeah. 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 Pilsner, hi. It's one malt. There you go. Exactly. Um, So now, you said earlier that New England IPA kicked in three weeks. What are the, what are the other things that you're finding that people around here want to drink? Yeah, um, we actually get a lot of the uh, the mainstream drinkers. A lot of people love the blonde ale. They love like a light lager, um, and it, it's probably just based on our demographic area that we're in and stuff, which is perfectly fine. Um, also, you're so, in Florida with heat and humidity. Exactly. So it is always 100 degrees here pretty much every day. Um, but yeah, our blonde ale, our miners light. Uh, we kind of made those beers to kind of emulate kind of the I guess you'd say mainstream. Bud Light, Coors Light type thing. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of those drinkers to come in here. Like, we'll get a lot of people come in here and say, what can I drink that be close to a Bud Light or a Budweiser? And we say we got our Miner's Light. Um, it's an American lager, but there's a little more flair to it, a little more flavor and stuff. Um, so 
those right now are kind of our best sellers, but um, IPA as well and our Blackstrap that we have, which is our uh, coffee milk stout, mm-hmm. uh, really, really popular. So we go through those beers pretty quick. I've got uh, uh, drinking a milk stout in Florida weather. That's... Yeah, I know. I know. Typically, believe it or not, man, even through the summertime, people just, they kill it. It's crazy. I know. <laughs> I, I don't get it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I always use uh, stouts to introduce a lot of people who are coffee drinkers yes. into, into beer, in, in, into craft beer. Yep. Because I find that works better because it plays into those players. I'm just, sure. I'm just like going, oh, that seems like a, seems like a hard sell in the summer, but I guess <laughs> right. not. Right? <laughs> oh. No, believe it or not, it, it's really it, it goes pretty good during the summer. You know, yeah. that's actually one of our cores we keep on all year round. Well, and I mean, we're here on a Saturday, and you know, it's a nice, it's actually a nice, cool day outside, not yeah. not too hot. And, and yesterday there was a nice little wind kicking up. Yeah, yeah, nice, uh, nice weather lately. But uh, this is yeah, and, and you are full up. I mean, you've got a number of people in here. And yeah, I mean, we're we're pretty packed all the time, um, especially starting around the evenings, like around five, six o'clock on Thursday, Friday, and Saturdays. Um, it's it's pretty tough to get in here, but we'll never deny a person. We'll always find a seat for them. Even if we got to start putting some tables back here in the brewery and get some people in here, we'll get them in here. Um, but yeah, it's 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 been great, man. And our customer base is amazing. Um, we have a lot of people that come in here, a lot of regulars and stuff that just really enjoy what we're doing here. So, what's a beer that you've wanted to brew that you haven't brewed, or are you in such a place where you can just do whatever you want? I'm pretty much in a place where we can do whatever we want, and that's our mantra. Like we always want to do something different, always have something going. But uh, my next two beers that I plan that I haven't scaled up yet and brewed big um, is a Schwartz beer, uh, which I'm mm. coming out soon, and also a Hellesbach. Hey, nice. um, so two of my favorites. Yeah, man. Yeah. And so I'll be brewing that. Next two weeks, we'll have that be brewing. And the Hellesbach, obviously, a couple months until we get it ready to come out. Um, but the Schwartz beer, also good months. So it probably won't be out for at least a couple months for those. But yeah. I'm looking forward to brewing those. Schwartz beer is probably one of my favorite uh, dark dark lager styles out there. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. And it's actually, I mean, surprisingly, not that hard to do. No, not at all. Yeah. I, uh, Just got to be careful with the amount of roast character you put in there. You don't want it to, because there's like an Americanized version of it, and there's the mm-hmm. other version of it, you know, where... In Germany, it's your strict Pilsen malt and just a little carafe in there. Just got that color and a little bit of roastiness. In America, we like to chalk it up a little mm-hmm. bit, which is fine. Um, I've had a lot of good roasty Schwartz beers that have won medals and stuff, you know. So. Uh, you, you can also cheat like some German breweries do, and it's really just their Pilsner with a, uh, like, uh, Cinemar in it. Right, exactly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and, and I love a good Hellesbach, you know. I mean, it's, oh, it's God, a Maybach, yes. right? It, yep. it, Maybach. Let's have, it, let's have it in May. Yep, yeah. and, yep. And course, thinking, I'm thinking about even calling it to Hellenbach, so we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. There you go. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, and of course, I always like to do like a, an Imperial uh, or really a, a Helles Doppelbach. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get, get above 10% get oh, way up there. Just, yeah. just because, you know, homebrewer, yep. stupid. yep. Um, so the one thing about it, we can do whatever we want. Yeah, exactly. Well, and now, of course, I mean, I mean I've... I really, I've been to a couple of places now, and I think four that are doing this concept of having the homebrew shop attached to to the brewery. To the brewery yeah, and you know, obviously you mentioned Southern before, and yep. I I had them on the podcast. I in lived the past. there for ten years, I swear. Well, and <laughs> uh, and of course Southern now, I mean Southern really almost feels more like a nano with a small homebrew shop sure. attached to it because yeah. every time I've gone back there, the homebrew site has gotten smaller and smaller. Yeah, I've noticed that. I think it's just because um, he's scaling, and, and not gonna lie, like any any type of homebrew shop, which you probably know, it's a hobby based business, so you're gonna have your ups and downs and stuff. Um, I had to scale back a little bit with some mm-hmm. products and stuff, just weren't going as much. So I get that sometimes you have to do that. Yep. Um, but yeah, I know what you're saying. So yep. I was there about a year ago, and they definitely were a little bit smaller in the homebrew area. But uh, but then on the on the nano side, way more beer than before. Oh gosh, yeah, and the beers are great there that yeah. he does. I, I, I don't know how, like even talking to him and understanding how he rotates the the th- one barrel kettles. 
I still don't the get the color coded clock he's got back there and stuff. It's pretty amazing how he does all that. It's yeah. crazy. <laughs> it's amazing that he'll get three turns in an hour. I know. Yeah. Uh, well, I know. Well, even like Rap Brewing over there in Tampa, um, he had a one barrel system for such a long time, mm-hmm. and he would always have probably no less than thirty beers on tap all the time. And he always, I, like, it, I don't know how he did it. And, and of course, he, he was the one who was always making the really killer lagers oh, too, yes. right? Dude, he, Which, was a, he was a German guy, very yeah. traditional stuff, and his beers were so amazing. Yeah. So and uh, what he he passed away last year? Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. that was a loss. Yeah, very big loss to the beer community. Um, but uh, I mean, I've been to, like I said, about four places now that have this homebrew shop, uh, you know, brewery yep. uh, vibe, and I've always loved how they play on each other. And yeah, they they kind of mutually support, right? Sure. Even even my yeah. homebrew shop in LA is partially supported by the winery that the owner also runs. Nice. Yeah, and so yeah, they and the businesses trade back and forth in terms of who's supporting who. Sure, at it's, time. it's both. It's good for both for both businesses. And 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 I think it's great to be able to have you know the, that ability to be oh hey you like this beer he, yeah here we can show you how to how do to make this. it exactly you know? yep yeah not that we don't want you to keep buying the beer but we, yeah, we also yeah. want you no of course yeah I mean I I tell people part of the reason I got into brewing was because I wanted to better understand what it was I was having sure. and I find that you know. There's better education possibilities, and, and the more that you understand how the brewing works, the more you appreciate what's coming out right. of the tap. And we've actually had people come take classes here that, that knew they really wanted to get in homebrew, and they just wanted to learn more about the aspect of how it's made. That way, when they're trying to beer something, they kind of know what to look for. Oh, this tastes like this. Now I get that's why it tastes like that or why this is that or that. So it's, it's beneficial big time. Cool. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, when you're not having a beer here, mm-hmm. what's the beer you're having? Oh, man. <laughs> Put me on the spot here. Ah, let's see. Um, I'm not going to lie. Um, I do love a good mainstream um, Bell's Two-Hearted IPA, mm-hmm. West Coast. I mean, that's kind of my go-to West Coast IPA I get, like, that I buy in a store or something like that. Um, I mean, look, if you can find fresh uh, fresh Two-Hearted. I know. I know, right? Um, that's like, uh, uh, like one of my favorites is, like, Fresh Celebration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fresh, yeah. yeah, there you go. Yep, Fresh Hop, yep. Um, gosh, man. I swear, it's like I live in this place. I never get to get out and really try other beers that much anymore, so I'm, like, <laughs> stuck on this one. Um, God, what's another one? Really good one. I will say, like, a couple of breweries I love to go to the, besides my brewery and, mm-hmm. and try some other beers. Tactical Brewing Company, Cider Brewing Company, uh, mm-hmm. Tuning Brews just opened up um, recently as well. Uh, they make amazing beers. Always, I haven't been over there lately because I've been so busy and stuff. But, and and I, have um, to la- I have to laugh that you can basically exit the airport and immediately hit a brewery. Oh, gosh, Ellipsis. yeah. I know, Ellipsis. Yeah, Ellipsis there. Uh, they're great. We were actually just there a couple of days ago. Uh, took the guys out for some beers because we've been a while since we've been able to go to other breweries. Um, so we went to Ellipsis. Uh, Castle Church is also over there near the airport. Mm-hmm. They just opened up about a year or two ago. Um, it's actually church and brew together. It's a really cool concept, and they make some really good beers. Well, um, and I've seen a number of news stories where, like, various ministries are having Sunday sessions in breweries. Right, because, exactly. Hey, have a beer in the Lord. <laughs> right, there you go. Yep. Um, well, and then we, we haven't talked. So... It's Rock Pit Brewing Company. Yep. And you have a very hardcore minor theme. We do. With an E. Yep. Not no. Um, <laughs> which, of course, seems very strange for living on a sandbar. It does. Yep. I can agree with that. <laughs> so, why, why Rock Pit? Why the minor theme? You got it, man. Uh, why Rock Pit? So, um, one day, me and my cousin Chris over there, who's my partner in the business, um, we were just kind of coming up with concepts that we knew we wanted to do a brewery and we were trying to figure out a good name for it and stuff. And, um, we have, we have a really, um, cool family heritage background, um, going back to our family and stuff. Um, it goes back to up to Kentucky, West Virginia mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Where um, mining makes sense. 
but there you go. <laughs> and um, so we're, we're trying to put stuff together. Like, um, we knew we wanted to do a tribute to my grandfather, who was, like, a really big coal miner up there in Kentucky, uh, preached in the church. He um, distilled his own liquor and also made his own beer, stuff like that. So he was kind of like a jack-of-all-trades guy. He was a busy man. He was, he was a very busy man, but he was the most humble guy I ever met in my life and just loved everybody and just really enjoyed life. <laughs> and um, we knew that we kind of wanted to do a good tribute to him, um, but also we go back to Hatfields as well. There's mm-hmm. a story of Hatfields versus McCoys that happened up uh, in West Virginia and Kentucky. Uh, big family feud back in the day, so um, we're related to um, the Hatfield family. And, um, oh, I'm, I'm related to the McCoys. Oh, oh boy. Wait, no, All right, we're done. This interview's <laughs> over. <laughs> no, no, I don't think my family has ever seen a McCoy. <laughs> but, yeah, so uh, we decided, you know what, Let, let's, you know, no one's done this yet in Florida. Let's take our family history um, of an old nostalgia look of an old mining town. Mm-hmm. Um, let's create it here in Florida. Let's put it in the warehouse that we found. And, um, yeah, it represents kind of like my grandfather and our, a lot of our family heritage going back in the day. Uh, and in some ways, given that I'm a former Disney guy, it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Big Rock Thunder Mountain. We've had a lot of people say it, and they come <laughs> in. It's funny you say that. You know? And the name, how the name came about, um, we were, like, trying to figure out names, this and that. And I'm like, well, my last name's Pittman. My, my cousin's last name's Rock. And we're like, Rock Pit. Rock Pit. That actually goes together pretty well. Rock Pit Brewing. And it kind of represents the kind of look and feel of what we have in here. You yeah. know? Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, I've, I this is my second time here, uh, and every time I've come, you guys have, you know, been gracious, and I Thank love you. the, I love the 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 crowd. I love you know the fact that the homebrew shop is here. I mean, we, you got somebody going through right now choosing yep, out grains. Measure some grains out. <laughs> you know, it's great. Yep. And then, yeah, and of course, you've got a lot of people out there enjoying enjoying beers and bringing in tacos. So, yes, sir. Yep. Or I, I'm bringing in tacos. So they can bring in barbecue. <laughs> yep. Um but no, I mean, I, I, I love this space because I do think that when you combine the homebrew side and the professional beer side together, you can do so much in terms of education and, and spreading yeah. love. Yep. Oh, and that does remind me, actually. Another another question. Yeah. Since you, since you have your feet in both worlds, mm-hmm. what do you think is the biggest lesson that homebrewers need to take from professional brewing and consequently on, on the converse? What do homebrewers need to ignore about the professional world? Um, I think they need to keep their artistic mind going. You know, um, a lot of people now are starting to get into homebrewing that I've noticed um, that just want to open a brewery. Mm-hmm. And nothing wrong with that. I think it's great. I think it's well, great like, that they're thinking about that. It's like chefs who, you know, chefs who are coming out of culinary school right. wanting to be on the Food Network. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, I, what I tell people is, like, you know, take your time with it. Enjoy the hobby of it. Remember the history and everything where it came from. Um, you're a part of that history now, you know, so... Remember that and um, always keep that in the back of your mind and never let that kind of take it away from what, you know, you really love about the hobby of it, you know, which is creating a product, creating something that somebody really loves, something that you really like and something you can look back on and say, I made this. This is really cool, you know. So, and on the converse, what should homebrewers ignore about the professional side? Uh, Try to ignore all the drama that happens. Um, you know, when people tell you, like, I've had a lot of people come up to me and they'll tell me, like, I went to so-and-so and I asked, you know, I want to open a brewery and blah, blah, blah. And they tell me, don't do it, you know. And I'm, I'm always like, you know, go for whatever you want in your dreams and stuff. Um, but ignore the, the drama. Ignore the stuff out there that people tell you that it can't be done because it can be done. But that's why I also say on the other side, take your time with it. Know what you're doing. Know the hobby well. Really love it. And then take your aspirations higher if you want to. Well, and a perfect example of it can't be done is people always say, oh, you know, you got to be brewing at least seven barrels or ten barrels in order right. to be able to turn something. Right, right. 
And of course, I think those rules have changed now. I mean, like, how, how much of your beer goes over the bar as opposed to out? Uh, right now, we're doing about 45 to 50 barrels per month. And we're not dis- distributing it all yet, so everything is just strictly in-house. So, so it's, it, all that's just over the bar? Just over the bar. So we've strictly, we've really brewed already out of our capacity that we have. Um, but we're going to keep the five barrel system going for a little while. Um, we do have plans for expansion next door in our other warehouse that we got mm-hmm. that's right next door to it. Um, but that would oh, be so I can for, park in that parking lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, just to, because um, we know, because we do have some people that really wants to get the dis- distributing and stuff. We have a lot of people that really want us out there. Um, but like I said, we're taking our time. But um, until we kind of get the bigger system going over there and stuff, then we'll start kind of delving in that. But right now, it's just strictly taproom right now that we're doing. And we're going to start canning soon, too. Um, hopefully next month or two, we're working with a guy to um, get some canning going, just selling strictly out of house. Mm-hmm. And then kind of once we decide to get our do that distribution um, thing. We're just taking our time, getting our feet wet. I don't want to move too fast on that, you know. Um, well, you don't want to take on the debt load. You don't want to right. Move, and, you know. I mean, it's good for cash flow and stuff and notoriety, but right now we just really want to concentrate and get people in here and having a good time in our tap room. Uh, this is the I've, – I've said this multiple times on, on the podcast about uh, breweries and, you know, people going, oh, when's the bubble going to burst? When's this? And, and, right, right. and, of course, obviously in distribution there's a big challenge of shelf oh, space sure, and sure. tap space and yeah. all that. Um, and I keep – my my point is, you know, I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a brewery wanting to be like, hey, I'm the neighborhood brewery. Yeah, not at all. No, I think that's kind of what lacks sometimes. I think a lot of breweries they get into, which is fine. They get into it and they want to dis- distribute right away, which is nothing wrong with that at all. Um, we just wanted to take our time with it and really concentrate locally and uh, build up a good regular base with people. Um, we want people to come in here and feel at home. You know, we've had a lot of people come in here and say that every time they come in here, it just feels like family and home and. And that's what our goal is. We want people to be comfortable and just enjoy themselves here. Well, uh, like I said, every time I've come in here, you guys have made me feel so welcome. So well, thank you, man. Y- y- you're working hard at it, and I appreciate it. And thank you so much Drew, for taking the time. Thank you so much, man. You got okay. it, buddy. Again, tell everybody uh, who you are, the yep. brewery, and the address. Sure. Yep. My, my name is Jeremy Pittman I'm with Rock Pit Brewing Company um, and Orlando Homebrew Supplies. We're a brew shop and brewery put together. Um, we're located at 10 West Ileana Street here in Orlando, Florida, um, in the Soto District. Uh, really close to, close to all the uh, family attractions and stuff here in Orlando. So if you get a chance, come out and check us out. Uh, absolutely, I agree. And like I said earlier, the nice thing is that there is a wide range of both beer and wine and cider. So there's something here for everybody. And I think you guys even have soda, right? So We do. And we just got, real quick, we just got our uh, meat and cider license. So we're getting that finalized. So hopefully within like the next year or something, we're going to start dabbling, making some nice meats and ciders as well of our own. There you go. So, something yeah. for everybody in the family. There you go. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate it, buddy. Man, it sounds like a great guy and a guy who's really committed to what he's doing there. Yeah, I mean, committed to making the best beer that he can, committed to running a really great little homebrew shop, committed to supporting his local homebrewers. I mean, the guy obviously knows, you know, the way that you make a homebrew supply shop uh, run and survive is through your local brewers and supporting them, but also being able to pull them into the into the brewery and being able to use that to educate his beer customers about exactly, you know, what goes on in the brewery to better appreciate the beer that's being produced. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, man. Uh, he's got like the total package there, huh? Yeah. And uh, again, I mean, they're just south of downtown. If you're in Orlando, let's say you're going to go visit either a mouse or a, a whole galaxy of stars. They're not that far away. Nothing in Orlando is really all that far away. Um, and it's a really nice little stop and you can get some nice food and you can have a really, really lovely time. So go visit the folks over at rock Pit brewing company. I'm, I guarantee you, you'll enjoy yourself. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to wrap up the show with some Q&A, a quick tip, and something other than beer. So please stick around. 
Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MeccaGrade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. We're going to wrap things up here, starting with some questions and answers. And uh, the first one comes from David Morrison, who says, I've been listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast for a few months. I've been doing brewing a bag for friends. I love the process of brewing beer, but I don't drink. Oh, man, there's a dedicated brewer right there. I play 1864 vintage baseball, and one of the other guys on the team was talking about making a beer for the start of the season. So I kept racking my brain and came up with the idea for an apple rye beer. Here's where I need help. Can you point me in the right direction on how to pull this beer off? I want it to taste like a spicy apple pie, but enjoyable in the summer. I have a five-gallon setup. Okay, I'll go first, and then you can take over. In the first place, David... I'm I'm not real sure about the whole concept of an apple rye beer. And maybe if you drank beer, you might have second thoughts about that also. But let's put that aside and figure out how the heck you might do it. Uh, as we all know from making cider, it's real, real hard to keep apple flavor in a beverage. It pretty much ferments out uh, and you don't really detect any apple. So that said, there are a couple ways you might try and go about it. Uh, see if you can find an apple extract to use. Uh, I assume that there must be one out there someplace. There. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, add that to the beer post-fermentation. That might be your best bet. I've had good luck in my own ciders by starting with a very flavorful apple. I may have mentioned before that we have a crab apple tree that uh, I use and make cider from that exclusively and that ends up with much much more apple flavor than uh, when i make cider from some of our other apple trees and 
I found that using Y's fourteen fifty. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, does really help cider retain some of its apple flavor. So I guess my three ideas would be to try extract, try and find a really, really flavorful variety of apple to use for the juice, and find a yeast strain that tries to leave some apple flavor behind. Uh, beyond that, I'm just going to have to think about this some more. Uh, you got any ideas? So first, when you say that you're not a fan of the idea of apple rye beer, and if you drink the beer, you'd understand why. Why do you say that? Well, I'm I'm just trying to like take my impression of a rye beer, and then in my head combine that with apple flavor, and at least to me, that does not seem like a real good combination. But you know, uh, I'm not making this beer. Well, because I mean, I could see where you could get the spicy nature of the rye to play off of the apple. You know, since and let's face it, when you say apple pie, really what you're thinking about is spice a lot of times. Um, so I could see some yeah. of that, and I could also see there are a lot of people out there who like to put a little rye flour in their pie crust. But no, I mean, I think it, if you're going to use rye, it needs to you need to stay pale. I don't think you want to go big, red, chewy rye, you know? Yeah, man, I'm I'm concerned about the how the earthiness of the rye would play against the apples. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, that's that's my concept. But mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. I think that... You would want to just have a hint of rye. Uh, maybe you'd be better off just skipping the rye and using some spices like you'd put it on a pie. Well, I think you should still have spices in this. So, I mean, you need to use your your cinnamon, your mace, your nutmeg, your clove, whatever it is that you use in your apple pie. Um, also, I would say the other thing is if you don't want to delve into the world of apple extract, apple extracts will be the easiest thing to do. And they will also you know, push the most obvious aromatics, even though it won't be the most complex aromatics. If you don't want to do that, um, the other way you could cheat, and it, I noticed David didn't say if he was kegging or bottling. I would have to assume, given that he's not drinking it himself and he's doing this for other people, that he's bottling, um, and which raises a concern because my, my natural inclination would say, go get some frozen apple concentrate. Yeah, but you don't want to do that if you're bottling. Right. If you if, I mean, if you're bottling, that will blow up your bottles. So don't do that if you're well, bottling. Well, well, I mean, and you could, I mean, you could put the frozen apple concentrate into the fermenter, but then again, it would all ferment out, and you would be left with no flavor from it. Well, so. but that's the thing is, I do notice that when you use the concentrates, like even if I've gone back and back sweetened a cider with it, even if there is partial fermentation, I still get more apple flavor after having used the concentrates. I, I suspect. They're juicing that stuff with flavorants, too. Yeah, that's entirely possible. So, David, you know, it, it may take you a couple test batches in order to figure out how to go about this. You might want to make some one-gallon test batches and, and try different approaches and see what's going to work the best for you. Uh, and, that's, uh, and, of course, you know, you're going to have your teammates who are going to love you because you're going to give them samples. And <laughs> yeah, that's and, right, man. And, give, and also importantly, give them a voice in the process, right? So if you do these test batches ahead of time, and they can say, "Oh, I like this, but I, I wish I had more," they get some more ownership over the beer as well, which is perfect you know, for a team sport. Yeah, and I think that's a great concept since uh, David doesn't drink; he won't be tasting any of this himself, so he won't really know how it came out. So being able to get the feedback from the guys on the team. I think would be real, real valuable as he develops the recipe. So yeah. Also, eighteen sixty four vintage baseball is rad. I wish there was some place to see it out here. Yeah, really, man. That sounds like it'd be really, really cool. But all right, you get the next one. All right, our next one comes from uh, Omar from Washington D.C. who says, 
I want to do more no-chill brewing because it saves time and water. Yep. So far, I've done it a couple times, and the results have been satisfactory. Good. I have one question, though, about an issue you didn't discuss in the episode. What about aeration slash oxygenation? You address slash dismiss the risk of oxygenation, which I agree with. Uh, but what about helpful O2 that the yeast needs? What, we got, what got me thinking is the fact that O2 is less soluble in hot wort, meaning that the wort we dump directly into the fermenting vessel will have little, if any, O2 in it. Does this increase the need for deliberate aeration slash oxygenation the following day before pitching? When doing my recent no-chill beer, an American Mild, somebody around here has done one of those, that was also done with no boil, hmm, from the second runnings of a barley wine, I pitched a pint of slurry into four gallons of 1045 wort, so it made sense not to think too much about O2. And the beer turned out fine, fully attenuated, and had no off flavors. But I'm curious to know how you'd handle oxygen requirements of a higher gravity wort with a smaller but still adequate yeast pitch. So, Omar, you're correct. If the beer is just going into the cube hot, yeah, you're not going to have a lot of oxygen dissolved into solution, which is the reason why, if you remember in the episode I talked about it, I'd been doing it where I was fermenting directly in the cube. A lot of the people who are doing no-chill brewing are transferring out of the cube into some fermenter vessel, so a carboy, a conical, a bucket, whatever. And during that period of time, they're doing, a lot of them at least, are doing sort of open air pour to, you know, try and mix in oxygen as they're doing it. You know, the old fashioned, old fashioned slop bucket uh, way of aerating your beer. If you don't want to do that for reasons, which I totally understand, then at that, yeah, at that point in time, once it's cool, you would just do your oxygen addition as if though you had just put the thing through an immersion chiller. And from there, you're fine. You're golden. So the only time that the, you'd have to really worry about the low oxygen level in the, in the wort is if you weren't taking it out of the cube. But even then, if you're not taking it out of the cube, just stick a wand into the cube and oxygenate that way. Yeah, right. Once it gets down to pitching temperature, just oxygenate what you've got. And the other thing that I preach all the time is that uh, if you pitch an appropriate amount of healthy, vital yeast, then oxygenation really becomes less of an issue, right? Since oxygenation is uh, a thing that you do to uh, help the yeast uh, replicate and grow. And if you put enough yeast in there in the first place, the need for growth is really reduced and therefore the need for oxygenation slash aeration also. So, you know, there's, there's a couple ways to go about it. Uh, for instance, if you're using dry yeast, I wouldn't even bother worrying about the aeration part, but you know, if you are using a liquid yeast or something else, just wait till it cools down and aerate it then. Yep. Just remember once the beer gets cool, treat it like normal. The only, yep, the only thing that it. changes in no-chill, other than some, maybe some of your hop timings, is that period of time between the end of the boil and the time you pitch. That's it. Everything else is the same. Yep, that's it. All right, final question. Final question comes from Andy Dara, who says, I use the shaken, not stirred starter method, and don't bother decanting before adding the entire liter to my word. Good on you, Andy. The DME has minerals in it, but I haven't even thought about that before. Should I be taking this into account when doing water adjustments, or is it negligible for a five-gallon batch? Okay, let's look at this. For one liter shaken, not stirred starter, you're going to be using three ounces of DME. I have not measured anything, but my bet is that there is so little in there in terms of mineral content that you can pretty much just forget about it completely. Uh, would that be your guess also? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a little under 5% of your total volume by the time you're done. Um, so, yeah, I think you'd be fine. Yeah, yeah, I, I just can't imagine, uh, you know, the... 
the levels of minerals in that DME are going to be pretty low. This, you know, this is a question we need to get in touch with Brees or somebody and ask him about uh, what kind of mineral levels there might be in their extract. Agreed. Uh, we probably ought to get on that then. <laughs> yeah, eventually we'll do that. Uh, but our, our, uh, scientific wild guess is that, uh, probably it's nothing you need to concern yourself with at all. And I think that that's pretty much borne out by our experience from pitching starter word, huh? Yep, exactly. So don't overthink it. Don't worry about it. You're fine. Yep. And as usual, Drew has both the quick tip and the something other, and I'm just dying to hear what this is all about. All right, yeah, so uh, for those of you who don't see it, uh, when we when I make the script for the show, uh, for those of you who, well, none of you have ever seen it, when I make the script for the show, there are a lot of little notes, and sometimes they're cryptic, because I know what I mean, and Denny has no, sh- no clue. <laughs> yeah, right, I have to sit here and wait, and then go, what the heck is he talking about? Yeah, so the quick tip uh, from me this week is get a new light. And so I brew, I've shown you guys pictures of this before. I brew in a garage from 1925. It's got a couple of lights in it and they've been woefully inadequate. And, you know, half the time I feel like I'm standing in a cave. So I went on to Amazon the other day and I discovered that there's this whole new world of lighting where people have made these screw in LED panels. So something that has yield standard light bulb socket that you can screw into a light bulb socket now has three adjustable flaps filled with LEDs. And so without having to do anything in the garage, I just screwed in this brand new LED panel and I now have light in all the corners of my garage back there. And oh my God, cool. I can see where everything is. Get a new light. Yeah. A couple years ago, I replaced uh, my fluorescent shop lights with LED shop lights and it just made a huge difference. I have one over my brewing space, one over the top of where my fermenters are so I can see down into them easily. Uh, really, really great things. Uh, so yeah, get new lights, make sure they're LEDs, they're bright, they'll last a long time and you'll be a good person for doing it. Yep. And then of course, something other than beer before we leave you. And I can't remember if I've talked about this before, but if I haven't, then yay. And if I had, it's been a while. Uh, if you can't tell, I'm sick. I've been sick for a little bit now. Uh, and boy, am I suffering from it. And you get sometimes when you're sick, you're kind of in that stupid phase where you can't do anything, at least anything useful. And, you know, for me, my mind still races. I just can't be bothered to do much. And I've rediscovered my love of the New York Times crossword app. Uh, if you have an iPhone or some sort of similar smart device, you can actually load the New York Times crossword puzzle for every day. And if you're a nutball, you know, they give you two puzzles per day. Uh, the big, uh, the big crossword and a small one that they call many. But if you're a real crazy person, you can actually subscribe to the app, which means that you get access to the full archive of New York Times crossword puzzles. And, you know, just download them to your phone and, and do everything there. And they have some ways to, help you learn how to play the crosswords and you start to learn some of the techniques. But I mean, it's basically, if you subscribe for the year, it's like 40 bucks, which boils down to about 20 cents per puzzle. And uh, yeah, I'm very, very pleased because I I can sit here and I can be sick and I can still try and do the Sunday crossword puzzle. I was very happy the other day. I beat my personal record. I, I finished a Sunday crossword puzzle in under 26 minutes. That's sick. I know. I mean, just just to prove how sick you really are, uh, I gave up on crossword puzzles many many years ago because it just proved to me how woefully stupid I was. Well, uh, so well, I, I highly suggest people give this a try. It's actually a really great app, and 
you know, like I said, it's like all the New York Times crossword puzzles, and you can you can really learn. You start to learn some of the tips, which is the reason why I got faster. Usually, the Sunday crossword puzzle takes me about forty five to fifty minutes. No, so. uh, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, then let's get out of here. All right, we're going to get out of here. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums, uh, mainly the AHA discussion forum. And you can find Drew on the homebrewing subreddit or the Slack homebrew channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcastatexperimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget that you can always give us a call or leave us a voicemail or text message at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Hey.